A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases every week from around the country. We are recording this on August 26, 2020. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And joining me today is retired Judge Catherine Mader. We are so excited to have a judge on this show because we really cover criminal justice and it's a perspective that we've just been dying to have. So we're so excited you're here, Catherine. Now, Thank before Catherine... Before Catherine was um, a judge, she was a criminal defense attorney, and she worked on one of the most famous cases in California. She defended the Hillside Strangler. She was also the first inspector general of the LAPD. And for those of you who don't know, that's kind of like the civilian oversight looking into really the, the misbehavior and criminality of a police force. It's a very important position. And it was a t- it was a really difficult time at the LAPD at that time. And also before that, she was a prosecutor and she worked in a special unit specifically looking into the the criminality of police officers and of elected officials. You've you've really done it all, Catherine. I certainly have. I've tried to see it from every angle. I've always been very curious. Absolutely. I I just have to ask you before, you know, we're going to talk about your new book, but I really want to hear just a little bit about what it was like defending someone like the Hillside Strangler at a time when California was gripped with fear. This was this was one of those serial killers before there was social media where people really were scared and locking themselves in their homes. Yes. Um I remember being the same. Um you know, it was interesting because there weren't that many uh, females who were available to defend somebody such as Angelo Bono. And my co-counsel wanted to have someone who was a female who had criminal law experience, which I did. Um, in some ways, I felt a bit like a prop um, because I would sit next to Angelo Bono and whisper with him and, and such and touch his arm. And, and uh, I know you're making, a, you're making a face like a lot of people did. And during that time, everybody wanted to know, well, you know, what's it like for a female to um, sit next to him and um, act like he's normal, which was the whole idea. Because here's a guy that, that killed, strangled 10 women. Um, and he's relating to a woman in court, so he can't be that bad. I mean, that's the subliminal message that was supposed to be sent, um, which probably worked because even though he was convicted of most of the killings, he ended up um, not getting the death penalty. It was, it was a um, two-year trial, so the jury had an opportunity to see him a lot. Um, one of the things I found um, very strange, but over time I've, I've kind of um, understood it, was that the public always wanted to know what it felt like as a criminal defense attorney for me as a female, um, even though I was doing half the trial. I was cross-examining witnesses. I was doing the investigation. Um, I was making legal motions. Nobody cared about any of that. They just wanted the human interaction explained to them. And... Um, you know, when you're a criminal defense attorney, uh, you just treat people like a 
like everyone else, like a client. Um, he wasn't a particularly nice person. Um, what was he like? Manipulative, um, cold, um, self-absorbed. Um, Sounds you know, so, like your typical serial killer, um, right? Yes, yes, they really are. Um, They're manipulative. Ways. Absolutely. He liked to create chaos um, between myself, my co-counsel, our investigators. He would tell stories about one of, like, he would say to me, oh, you should hear what, what so-and-so said about you, that you did a terrible job at this or a terrible job at that. And for a while, we, we were kind of concerned um, about each other. Um, and then we realized that he was just making it all up in order to create some, some fun for himself. So is all of this in your new book, do, do you include the Hillside Strangler? I do include the Hillside Strangler, but definitely not to the extent of what I've just described. Clearly, you've had a fascinating life in the world of crime, um, fortunately on the right side of it. Uh, and you've written this new book, Inside the Robe, A Judge's Candid Tale of Criminal Justice in America. And we are going to talk about that a little later in this episode, but I'm just, I'm fascinated about the Hillside Strangler. I, who, does everybody always say to you, tell me about the Hillside Strangler when they find out you defended him? Uh, they used to. Um, yeah. Now, there's a whole new generation of people that probably hasn't even heard of him. And, you know, we, we talk about him, but there was actually two people, right? Um, Angelo Bono and Ken Bianchi. Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so, wait a minute. So, what happened to him? Is he still alive? No, he's not. How did he but die? He died of a heart attack, I believe, in prison. Justice is interesting, isn't it, Judge? <laughs> <laughs> Things come around. <laughs> they sure do. Our cases this week, we have a couple allegedly admits to storing a dead body of a woman in a freezer after they raped and killed her. But first, a Mississippi man who owns a popular Southern restaurant and he's a reality TV star allegedly conspired with an exotic dancer in a murder-for-hire plot against his nephew. This is a very bizarre story. And because it has this element of a reality show and how things are actually playing in front of the cameras while things are going on behind the scenes, it just is one of those insane cases we have this week, Judge. So 41-year-old James Timothy Norman, who goes by Tim, was arrested on August 18th and he was booked into the Madison County Detention Center. He is accused of hiring someone to murder his 20-year-old nephew, Andre Montgomery. Andre was killed in 2016, on March 14th of 2016. Now, it, this case is going to be a little complicated, so I'm just going to give you a, a few headlines, and then I like to do things, Your Honor, um, chronologically, because I feel that mm -hmm. it helps with following a case. Because, Definitely. you know, right, things are, are happening all over the place. So, the man who is accused here, Tim Norman, he is one of the owners of a Jackson, Mississippi restaurant. And this is part of a limited chain of a St. Louis-based restaurant called Sweetie Pies. And Sweetie Pies and the family that runs it was featured on a TV show which was on the OWN network 
And that show was called Welcome to Sweetie Pies. It was very, very popular. And I have to admit, I always did enjoy the show whenever I'd tune in, you know. Oh, oh, you've watched it? I've watched it. I mean, not watched it religiously, but when this case became public, the arrest, I'm like, what? Sweetie Pies? You know, and especially with a name like that. But what was great about the show is that it featured this St. Louis-based restaurant and this family and the matriarch of this family and the family's personal struggles. So the matriarch, who is Tim's mother, okay, the, 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 the defendant, the suspect here, his mother is Robbie Montgomery, and she goes by Miss Robbie on the show. Well-loved, very popular woman. Also, she used to be a, um, a backup singer for Ike and Tina Turner which I just, mm-hmm. I just love. Um, there are a lot of people watching and listening to this who have no idea who they are. <laughs> but nonetheless, okay, so let's get to the criminal complaint here. According to the criminal complaint, um, he, meaning Tim, conspired with an exotic dancer, Terika Ellis, who was, she's been now booked and arrested, and she is in the custody of the FBI. Here is what they allegedly tried to do. Tim and Terika are both charged with conspiracy to use interstate commerce facilities. I guess that means telephones in the commission of a murder for hire resulting in death. Is that what that means? Basically, they use the telephone. Yes. And I find that interesting that this is a federal case. This is not because murders. When I think of a murder, I always think of that being a state case, not necessarily a federal case. Murder for hire is usually a state case. I was surprised to see um, that they charged it federally. Um, perhaps, um, I mean, the fence can take any case they want. And particularly here, it would appear that there was some cross, crossing state lines to um, accomplish the murder. So um, that's probably the reason that they took it. And let's face it, it is never a good idea when you're a reality TV star and you are now on the radar of the feds. That's always bad. It always ends badly. And it has in this case. And this case is really horrific. I think when you look, when you look at the details and I think you think about what's going on in the family here, like why you would do this, you know, you understand why people take, I mean, it's, it's, it's classic, right? You take out an insurance policy, you arrange to have the person killed, you're the main beneficiary, you then collect or you try to collect on the insurance. But generally when people do that, they take out an insurance policy on someone they hate, right? Because they want that person gone. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> when, oh, really? I, when I prosecuted um, several murder for hire cases, it was not necessarily somebody that they hated. Um, it was pure greed. They had gotten themselves into trouble. Um, one, um, had a hundred thousand dollar insurance policy, um, mutually on the roommate, um, um, that they had purchased a house together. Um, and for whatever reason, they each got insurance policies on each other's lives. Um, and it, it reminds me, the other, the other one was a husband-wife situation, um, where on the surface, everything was, was fine between them. Um, and there's a couple others. But 
Um, what I found interesting in this case, which was very similar in the case where the roommate was killed, is that the, the person who decides to do this has to be really, really cold. Because um, they take out the policy for, for no particular reason of animosity. And then the, um, the uncle here was interacting, presumably, with his nephew over a period of two years um, in a friendly manner, all the while knowing that um, he was planning to kill him. Um, that's pretty terrible. And, and in the one case I'm thinking of, it was a nurse, um, a registered nurse that um, had the mortgage, mortgage insurance policy on her roommate and did the same thing. It is cold. And it's also cold when we start weaving in what was going on that we were seeing in the show, not knowing what was going on behind the scenes. I think that's what makes this really disturbing and, and really revolting. Um, it is unclear why the FBI started looking into this case, but my guess is that it had to do with the life insurance policies mm -hmm. because they were initially um, the claims after Andre Montgomery. Excuse he me. Made a, he made a claim four days after the murder. The, the yes, killer. the uncle did, the uncle and did. it was rejected. Mm -hmm. Right. So. And then if you start looking at it, and you know, generally insurance companies, they never ever want to pay out, obviously, but they do have their own investigators. So I have to believe that, you know, getting an insurance policy on an 18-year-old and, kind of, and the kind of policy and what else was going on had to start raising some red flags, especially after he was murdered. So let's, let's go back in time to 2014. So in 2014, Tim Norman, this would be the suspect now, took out a $450,000 life insurance policy on his nephew, Andre, who was only 18 years old. That's a really, really young age to get a life insurance policy. And Uncle Tim, as I will, I will call him, he was the sole beneficiary. Mm -hmm. According to the federal indictment, Tim conspired with the insurance agent to get this policy, and it apparently was not that easy because, according to the indictment, they submitted three applications with all sorts of false information about the nephew's income, health, and whatever documentation was necessary. And apparently it wasn't that easy to get these insurance policies, but the insurance agent managed to get the following policies. This is very important to understand what kind of policies they were and the timeline on them to understand why the clock was ticking here. So the agent managed to get a $200,000 policy plus an additional $200,000 in the event the nephew died of something other than natural causes. There you have he, it. <laughs> there you have it. He was shot dead. Okay. And there was another $50,000 that he could have claimed, that the uncle could have claimed, if the nephew died within the first 10 years of the policy being written. So the clock is ticking and time is of the essence because in order to collect the maximum amount, everything has to happen in less than 10 years and he has to die not of natural causes. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if the plot of the murder was already laid out here. Clearly, um, 
there was a motive <laughs> for the murder. Um, the other argument that could be made by a defense attorney, I'm wondering in this case, is I don't know what um, I don't know much about the nephew and whether or not he was a member of a gang. Um, I don't but, believe so. Um, there might have been, I mean, if you're a defense attorney, you say, well, it's not that unusual uh, because we have a lot of gang violence in our city and um, it's possible that he could have been um, a victim of, of gang violence in these years between 18 and 28. So uh, I can always use the money and why not? The thing that I, I find weird about this but of course there's some fraud involved in getting the policy is that um i believe that if somebody's getting a policy on your life um that you have to know about it um you can't i mean there has to be i would think um a signature or something i i had a case where someone impersonated the um beneficiary of, of the person who the life insurance was being bought for so that, and, and that it had to be notarized and such that people understood that, that um, somebody was buying this life, a life insurance policy on their life. So something had to be um, written that was false on the, on the papers about the knowledge of the nephew. I suspect that you're right on that, that that was part of the falsification here yeah. because uh, I, I I don't know, but I doubt that Andre knew, um, because that would be a really strange thing for your uncle to say, hey, happy 18th birthday. I'd like to take out a $450,000 policy on your life. You know, that's just really weird. But you are right, you know, Catherine, about this area of St. Louis. It is an area with a lot of crime, and there there is a lot of violence, and there are a lot of murders, and there is gang activity um, but we don't believe that Andre Montgomery had anything to do with that. In fact, Andre had moved to St. Louis to move in with his grandmother, who would be the suspect's mother. This would be Miss Robbie. So she could help raise him. And that was part of the storyline on the show. People got to know Andre Montgomery. And she was rooting for him, helping him graduate from high school. And it was a big deal when he graduated from high school. Because I think as the matriarch of any family um, and, and your own and your family has struggles, you know, you're always trying to help your youngest, your most vulnerable um, to get through life safely. So I think that's what's even more tragic here and so painful. I, I want to stay here with the policy for a second because then in 2015, so this would be the next year after the policy was finally written up, Tim, Uncle Tim attempted to obtain a replacement policy, but that one was denied. It is unclear what would have been different in the second policy. Maybe it was for more money. But that, again, is like, wow, what is this obsession with getting a policy on this young man? So Tim is now accused of orchestrating this shooting death of his nephew and this very complicated murder-for-hire plot involving a stripper. So, as we said, you know, Andre moved from Texas to St. Louis to be with his grandma and to be with the extended family, and this was all part of the show. Um, I, I got to tell you, 
I'm a little suspicious here, and there's this is just my speculation, but I wonder if the amount of attention that Miss Robbie was paying to her grandson, Andre, if that maybe just didn't bother Tim a little bit, because Tim had lots of challenges in his life. He had um, a criminal past. He spent 10 years in prison for a series of holdups uh, that took place at a McDonald's um, and um, another business. So he certainly had had a lot of problems in his life. And I just, you know, the relationship between grandparents and grandchildren is always very interesting. And I just wonder if there wasn't a little jealousy going on there. It could be. It could be. But see, my suspicions um, are going back to, um, I, I don't want to say necessarily gangs, but drugs or something. Because why did he have such trouble living at home and have to be sent to his grandmother's for a new start, so to speak? Something was going on with him. Um, that's just my um, speculation. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe the grandmother needed to spend more time trying to straighten him out, but maybe he wasn't as um, good of a kid as is portrayed. And so, again, this goes to a defense line of argument that um, the uncle could have gotten the policy because he thought that, that the nephew might be killed in some sort of violence. Maybe it was over, you know, purchase of drugs or whatever. So, I mean, if I was a defense attorney, that's what I would say. Um, obviously, that's not what the uncle was really thinking <laughs> uh, because we know <laughs> that, you know, he, he, he wanted the money. And I think that what then happens in 2016, which would be the year that Andre is murdered, there's a lot going on in Tim's life, which is, I think, going to give us some of the context of what's going on within the family and what is happening financially. So in 2016, Tim moves to Los Angeles to get a restaurant that he has in Englewood going. Also, in 2016, his mother, Miss Robbie, the matriarch the owner of Sweetie Pies, sues, sues her son, mm. um, claiming that his operation of three Sweetie Pie restaurants was a copyright infringement. It appears that Tim, her son, had opened up a bunch of restaurants with the same name and he was trying to make it into a national chain. And my guess is if his mother is suing him, it's because he was doing it without her permission and blessing because why else would, I mean, she probably, my guess is the mom says to the son, stop it. He ignores her. Fine. I'm taking you to court. That's a pretty drastic thing for a mother to do to, yes. to, to sue a, a son. Right. And ultimately she prevails and he had to close down those restaurants so my guess is those restaurants would have been bringing in some money, which now makes money a necessary immediate problem that maybe that 10-year mark is getting a lot closer because now things are changing because his money supply may have very well just been shut down. So I wonder if those problems led to this murder-for-hire plot finally being enacted. Okay, so, early on the morning that Andre is killed, according to court documents, his uncle Tim arrived in St. Louis from Los Angeles, where he was living. Remember, he just moved Ooh. out here, and he checked into a local hotel. He didn't stay with his mom. Very weird. Isn't that weird? Very weird. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a red flag. 
Terica arrived from Tennessee. This would be the exotic dancer. And she had told Andre in advance that she was going to be coming out to town to St. Louis. She wanted to see him. Andre was an aspiring rapper. Um, and he was going to be in the studio that day. So at 1 p.m., according to the feds, Tim and Terica activate burner phones. Okay, it's not a crime to have a burner phone, but it's interesting, right? Why don't you ex- explain maybe what a burner phone So burner phone is the kind of um, phone that you can activate. It's got a SIM card and isn't going to be traced to your account. You can buy it with cash and no one can really prove unless, of course, you can time the surveillance and the, the, the sale of that phone. It's a lot harder to track you through GPS and all that other stuff if they don't know that you're using that phone. It's a good way to throw off investigators. And if you're up to no good or you want to maintain a sense of privacy and secrecy for maybe for no criminal intent, you would use a burner phone. So right. it's seven. I, w- I was just going to add that um, I believe that law enforcement um, now has means in which they obviously did in this case to figure out um, who had the burner phones and where the burner phones ended up at particular times, which yes. all, always kind of tell the story. Yes, and it is not foolproof in the sense that no one will ever find you. It's that mm-hmm. in real time, mm-hmm. you're buying yourself some time. And if you're very clever about how you buy it and no one sees you buying it and how you get it, then you can even further delay them locating and connecting you to the burner phone. But yes, it, yeah. it buys you time in, in the commission of a crime. So at 7 p.m., Andre um, texts the stripper his address. He's in a recording studio, and he says, this is where I'm going to be. An hour later, after he reveals his address, he's dead. Witnesses say that Andre received a call. He went outside to meet someone, and that's when he was killed. So this is... This is the brilliant part. Remember the whole burner phone and you don't want to be traced. Andre had taken the number that the stripper had used to call call him, right? And he made sure to put her burner phone telephone number in his contacts. And he, and he um, saved it under her stage name. And her stage name is Alexis Dugrate. Okay, so... That's Immediately, li- yeah, that's likely how the how the police found and unraveled Strong. everything. Yeah, and st- and found the insurance policy, and it's taken them years to figure out what happened, who happened, why. Um, the location of the burner phone puts her, um, Terica, there at the scene of the crime, and then she drives and goes back to Memphis. After she arrives in back home in Tennessee, she starts making cash deposits into several bank accounts, totaling $9,000. So clearly she hit payday somewhere. Now, on March 18th, four days after the murder of Andre, Uncle Tim contacts the insurance company and says, I would like to collect, but the insurance company denies him a payout because there's some problem with the paperwork. So... He never got the money. Now, if he did do this, his nephew is dead and he doesn't have a dime to show for it. And he's just paid the stripper $9,000. So he's actually out $9,000. Now, this to me is the most revolting part. 
while this is going on behind the scenes, according to what the authorities are telling us, this is what's happening in front of the cameras on the TV show. Because Andre was a part of Sweetie Pie's show, his murder is a part of the show. So there is a, a clip where Uncle Tim and his mom, Miss Robbie, go to the location, the street where Andre was murdered. And the cameras are rolling on all of this. We have a short clip that we want to play for you because what I find very interesting in this clip is that Tim states declaratively, for the record and for his mother, it's been years since it's been years since I've been on this street where Andre was murdered. It's just an interesting thing to say. Here's the clip. I drove my mom through the park to the spot where Andre lost his life because I had not been there yet. Okay. So then then Tim shares, you know, that on this street and nearby is where his own father had been killed. So clearly this is a family that has dealt with a lot of crime and and they've been victimized. And yet here's another family member who's been murdered. But from the perspective that we're seeing on camera, this is like, you know, a random crime that has been committed on on their on her grandson, only to now be told by authorities, oh, no, it was your own son that had him murdered because he wanted money for, for insurance. I, I can't even imagine wh- how that went down. I'm also wondering about why they're together after she sued him and won. Why would um, he and his, and his mother be um, going around town together? You'd think there'd be some bad blood. Something is just weird. Um, yes and no. I mean, I I don't know whether you have children. I I have a son. Um, you know, clearly Tim had a troubled life, spent 10 years in prison, clearly was struggling. It was part of the storyline, trying to get his life together. And I think that a mother always has a sense of optimism that no matter what, somehow her child is going to find the right path. Absolutely. I've got three. Right. right? You <laughs> yes. just mothers never give up on their kids. Never. Never. So I don't find that so weird, you know, and if she had a dispute with him, she settled it. Clearly, she's a strong woman and she has no problem, you know, making clear what's right and what's wrong in her world. Mm-hmm. And it's all what I did find interesting is that there was one of these, you know, when you have these reality shows, they have like these wrap up episodes where the whole family is sitting together and they start talking about the season and uh everybody you know is crying about andre and everyone's body language like i noticed it's like it's not quite a semicircle but everyone is pointed like their knees and their body is all they're all pointed toward each other and tim's body language is pointing away from everybody it was (laughs) just he looked really uncomfortable and and no wonder because this is what his mother said in this episode. She's talking about, again, the violence in St. Louis and the amount of violence that her own family has suffered. And this is what Miss Robbie says. She says, to pick up a gun is easy, but to take someone's life that you can't give back, that is devastating. Mm-hmm. Right? Def- definitely. And you wonder about how desperate the stripper uh, was that came from another state to it's it takes something to shoot someone um that 
that you don't have any animosity towards, any hatred towards, that you have a good relationship with to be able to point a gun at them and, and kill them. I mean, that's, that's a pretty difficult thing to do, I would think. Yeah. I, I would think so, too, and I, I certainly don't understand it. Um, so, before this murder for hire plot was revealed in 2017, so this would have been right after uh, the murder of Andre, Tim has another uh, run-in with the law. He is charged with a misdemeanor assault. It happened at a Houston restaurant where one of the chefs came up to him and was asking him about paychecks for the rest of the staff, not even for himself. And Tim Norman just loses it and supposedly punches him. Um, and again, this was happening at a restaurant that was one of the Sweetie Pie restaurants. The background, the criminal background for Terika, the exotic dancer. She has minor criminal background. She's got two misdemeanor convictions in 2006 and 2007. One for indecent exposure. My guess is that's related to her stripping, mm -hmm. you know, that the, the place yeah. was raided. Probably. And then the other one was drug possession. So nothing huge in her criminal background. If convicted, both of them could get life in prison for the murder for hire plot since it resulted in a death. And then the wire fraud charge itself could get 20 years in prison. So you, as a judge looking at this, how hard do you think it's going to be to prove that they murdered Andre? Because I, it makes sense, but what I'm wondering is where's the rest of the proof? What I have seen happen in murder for hire cases, people always think that they're smarter than everyone else. They're going to commit the perfect crime. Um, the problem is that they don't realize that everyone else who is trying to commit that same crime makes the exact same errors. Um, getting the life insurance policy, trying to um, collect on it immediately. Um, thinking that this, the phone calls are going to save them um, because they bought a burner phone when in fact um, the calls can be traced and the, the phone calls are such powerful evidence um, generally of somebody's movements. And, and um, I believe that she also, the stripper called, there's a call on the phone um, a minute after the shooting, she calls um, the uncle. Um, to tell him, I presume that that um, everything was accomplished and that his nephew is dead. Um, so you've got an, a number of different things that are are very clear here. Um, generally, in Los Angeles, and I don't know if it um, is the same across the country, but I would think it might be. The person who does the hiring is it's harder to prove the crime um, because they're one step removed, of course, um, than the actual person who is the the killer. Um, and so here the person who would put everything together is <clears throat> the stripper. So I would guess that she would be given something less, perhaps, perhaps she'd get life imprisonment but have the possibility of parole, whereas he would get life imprisonment. Um, there, there's no death penalty involved in this case, I, I'm, I'm asking, because usually um, 
<clears throat> somebody faces the death penalty and the other person who actually did the killing is offered less than death. Well, I, I think if, if anyone can implicate him, there are two people. One would be Tarika, who supposedly pulled the trigger and was hired by him. Mm-hmm. And she has something to gain by turning on him, especially if she gets some form of leniency. Right. And then the other person would be the person who wrote the insurance policies. We have not spoken about the agent. So, uh, on August 20th, just a few weeks ago, the grand jury also charged the insurance agent, Y.L. Yangwin, 42 years old of St. Louis, with one count of conspiracy to commit wire and mail fraud. Now, he is not charged in the murder-for-hire plot, but he's the insurance agent who wrote the policies. My guess, he also, right? Yeah, he'll turn. He'll turn, right? Yes, but presumably he doesn't know anything about the murder. He He can talk about how the uncle came in there and was very insistent that he get these policies and how they talked about them. Um, he can talk about how the uncle talked about his nephew, what the relationship was, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but you don't really know. I mean, the uncle could have said to the insurance agent, you know, I really love my nephew and I really don't want anything to happen to him. But if it does, um, I'd like to have this policy. Well, the question is, did the insurance agent know that the documents that were handed were fraudulent, may may not have known, or may have conspired, right? Yeah. Yeah, may have. So the insurance agent, again, who's not been charged in the murder for hire plot, but but he's got a count of conspiracy against him for mail and wire fraud. Um, what's also interesting is that he was also one of the producers of Nellyville. That was one of the albums that St. Louis rapper Nelly made with the help of, I guess, this former producer who's now an insurance agent because that's what you do when you no longer produce albums, I guess. You sell life insurance policies. Uh, it, it, the whole thing is very bizarre, but at the end of the day, I think it's it's very typical of a murder-for-hire plot. Mm-hmm. The motivation seems um, obvious, but my God, what what tragedy. What tragedy. This loss of life, this young man, only 18 years old, and for what? So some guy can try and collect on his policy and he doesn't get the money anyway. That's how it usually plays out. But people think that they can, they can do it. You know, they're, they're going to make, <clears throat> make it work. They're smarter than everyone else. They're smarter than the detectives. They're smarter. Um, you know, they've, they've, they've got it planned. He had two years to figure this one out. and. He's an idiot. Really. He is. And his mother must just be beside herself. Oh, absolutely. Her grandson murdered and presumably, ultimately, at the hands of her own son. Yeah. Horrible. Our second case, a Tennessee couple has been accused of kidnapping, torturing, and then sexually assaulting a woman before they murdered her. Rebecca Dishman, who's 22 years old, and her boyfriend, 52-year-old Sean Finnegan, have been charged with the murder of a 36-year-old woman, Jennifer Paxton. 
Jennifer Paxton's body was found dismembered in the couple's freezer on August 5th, 2020. What is it with people? Why do they stash body parts where they live because they can be found? Okay, this is this, you know, and this is a horrendous crime. This is this is just what was done to this woman is is torture and evil. Authorities responded to um, a call at the Oak Ridge home on August 5th. And during a search of the property, they found Paxton's body. According to the warrants, Dishman and Finnegan lured Paxton into their home with the promise of a place to stay. This goes back to December of 2019. So this was, you know, almost a year ago. And uh, the warrants say that the crimes happened after December 23rd, meaning, you know, the torture and the ultimate murder. Once, once Jennifer Paxton was in their home, she was then held against her will, allegedly chained to the bed, shackled with a dog collar, her arms bound with zip ties. Dishman and Finnegan allegedly used baseball bats to beat her so she wouldn't resist, so she wouldn't try to escape. They also allegedly denied her food, water, and medical care. I mean, are we really surprised given this is how they allegedly treated her. What I find interesting, Judge, is how can authorities get this level of detail on what was actually, on what actually occurred there? Presumably they would have confessed. Well, they did. I, I read that they each had confessed. Yes, yes. Um, but I- and presumably they, they gave the detail um, to the authorities after they were found out. Um, what's what's kind of surprising also, though, is that in California or in Los Angeles, no, California, I think it is, um, you cannot, as a law enforcement agency, um, even if you the suspects have confessed, you do not tell that to the press because of the tainting of the jury pool. But I believe in this case, they did release the fact that both um, both of these suspects did confess to the crimes. Which really makes you wonder, it's like, Okay, first you do this, which is horrendous. Then, then you tell the police, oh, yes, this is who that is, and this is how she ended up there. Which, you know, you're like wondering, okay, what is it with these two? I mean, they're not even good. They're, they didn't even try to lie. They're not even good liars. But I guess what can you do when you have, you know, the body right in front of you? So, apparently, um, Paxton... The victim here, she was raped before she was strangled to death. That is how they killed her. Police then say, again, based on these confessions, that once incapacitated, they repeatedly raped her before using a ligature to strangle the victim to cause her to die. Um, the Oak Ridger website reports that police say that after killing the woman, the two defendants cut off a portion of at least one of her breasts her nose, broke her bones, and then they tried to make her fit into the stand-up freezer. Then, in an attempt to hide the evidence of this murder, they start using bleach and a Swiffer. And if you've ever used a Swiffer, yeah, it's great for dust, but it is not for DNA and certainly not for blood particles. Um, Cleaning everything up. And then, here's, I mean, I don't get this. So the guy, right, he takes the body out of the freezer and then he hides it under the bed 
in an attempt to clean the freezer of evidence. <laughs> I didn't understand that either, because you would think that there would be a lot of of stuff coming out of the body mm. underneath his underneath his bed. Um, anybody who tries to hide evidence like this um, is obviously not aware that police have um, scientific techniques. Um, even if you, he, he was cleaning the, the floors and such, they, they said, um, where they must have, have tortured her. But you can actually see when the police use their chemicals on the floor or on the freezer, you, you can not only see the leftovers, but you can see the leftover evidence, but you can see evidence of trying to clean up. Right. So um, it's, it's silly to, to try to do that. The problem is obviously that if you um, have a body in your house, it's the hardest thing in the world to figure out what to do with it at that point. And I don't think they thought ahead. Um, no, they didn't think. For sure they didn't think, which yeah. is going to come in to, you know, I guess their prosecution here. So they're facing uh, charges of aggravated kidnapping, sexual battery, first degree murder, and abuse of a corp plus uh, of a corpse, excuse me, plus of tampering with evidence. They're each being held on one million dollars uh, bond. Now here's interesting. On August twenty first, the judge in the case agreed to an order directing Finnegan, this would be the guy, to be examined by a psychiatric at a psychiatric hospital. And they want to test his mental competency, his mental state at the, type, at the time of the crime, his ability to assist in his defense, and they're also going to conduct an IQ test. So, as a former judge, I have to ask you, you know, everybody tries to say, oh, I was crazy, because who else would do such insane things to a human person? But how often does that really work? generally doesn't work. And particularly in a case like this, I don't think it would work. I mean, I think the fact that, that these tests were, were um, sent for was probably as a result of a defense attorney who had been appointed to represent him requesting that these tests be done. I don't think the judge would have requested it on his own. It seems to me that when you look at what happened in this case, there is so much evidence of premeditated murder and the capability of of planning um, and doing things in an, in an organized manner, even though it's a stupid manner, um, from luring her into the house to how they were able to incapacitate her to how they were able to think of trying to clean up the evidence. Um, there's nothing wrong with his brain. He, he, he could have, you know, a low IQ. He, he, is obviously a depraved human being. And they said that there was a prior incident that is, is very unclear involving this same guy where, where he trapped a, another woman in his home um, and she was able to escape. And I'd, I'd be very curious because it didn't happen that long earlier. It, was, it happened in 2015, how um, he was out of custody. Um, and I would bet you that the, the that the woman in this case is going to claim that she was abused and a prisoner herself. You mean the alleged accomplice? The, the alleged accomplice, yeah, in this case. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Could be, it could be. I mean, clearly, um, he's a sick individual. There's no question about that. And I don't think you need a psychiatric test to tell you that, that he's yeah. also evil. Um, all right, so they are both being held 
And the fact that they confess, though, Judge, that doesn't mean that just because they confess doesn't mean that they can then decide to enter a plea of not guilty and insist on a trial, right? I mean, that can happen, too. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, just because you confess, you can make arguments that um, I just... Um, I just said it because I was so frightened and, and, you know, I've been held against my will for the last six or eight months and um, I was crazed and, and he told me what to say and the police officers were abusive and, and beat this confession out of me. I mean, who knows what they could come up with. So that all could change. We're going to keep an eye on this one, but it is really a disturbing one. And the victim, Jennifer Paxton, she is survived by her grandparents, two brothers, an uncle, her mother, and she has seven children. She had seven children. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's oh, very, that's, very that's, sad. Ter- that's terrible. How, how, were, how did the authorities come to that house? I'm very curious. I, know, I think there was something about a missing person's um, there was a report. call to the police, and that is the part that's a little fuzzy. What kind of a call and why? And yeah. again, this would have been many, many months after after the murder, because mm-hmm. she'd been in the freezer for since December, and they just went to the house a few weeks ago. Maybe it was the accomplice that called. That or someone who came out. over, right? Someone could have come over to the house and opened the, the freezer. I mean, that's not an insane thing to have family come and visit, to come and grab something from a freezer. It's, it's not, right? This, this guy didn't look like he had a normal family life. I'm sorry. Right. No, of <laughs> if you course. look at his picture. Okay. Yeah, I don't think anyone was showing up with a bun cake. I get yeah. that, you know, to the murder house. But nonetheless, that does happen. You can still have... You can. Right? Oh, what a horrible case. What a yeah. horrible case. So, Catherine, your new book, Inside the Robe, A Judge's Candid Tale of Criminal Justice in America, is it all about your cases or is it a combination of all the different things you've done in the criminal justice system? Not really. Um, What I have always been fascinated with is behind the scenes stories. So um, just to give an example, I would say... um, Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain that talked about what it was really like in the restaurant industry. So um, I realized because there's plenty of books written by prosecutors and defense attorneys talking about their cases and such. And there's even books about judges, some really nice ones talking about their early years. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor has done um, some and some Sonia Sotomayor, and actually Clarence Thomas wrote a very nice um, autobiography. This is not like that. Um, I realized that there was really no um, book that talked about what it really felt like as a judge. Um, No personal book about what it's like to sentence somebody. How do you make a decision whether to give somebody a second chance or to lock them up? Um, I took a year, um, and I kept a diary of what was going on in my court, um, between myself, some of the attorneys, um, who I got along with some that I didn't get along with. I talked about tricks of the trade. How, how do you calm people down? How, how do you get along with a prosecutor who's, who clearly hates judges, um, classes that we take on, 
um, various subjects such as, as um, how to um, impartially judge, th- th- those sorts of things. Um, and uh, so I combined that um, for a year. It's definitely not a brag book about cases that I have overseen. There's a lot of more personal stories about um, why I, I did something and why in my background um, I might have been influenced by my background to see things a certain way and how lots of judges are influenced um, by their backgrounds. I've always thought as a reporter in the courtroom that the judge's job is the loneliest job in that room. Well, you're, you're popular for one day um, uh, for one person, and then uh, everything goes back to square one again. Um, it, it is difficult to make some decisions, and there are political reasons, and there are other types of reasons that um, come into play as to the decisions you make which I explain fully in the book and how we are told to put our personal feelings aside and learn how to put your personal feelings aside um, when you make a decision. But um, some of us do it better on some days than other days. Some people are, are totally influenced by something that happened in their life. Um, an example I could give you is um, a judge who always thought that jail was appropriate um, if you sold drugs and always locked someone up until their, their child got involved with drugs. And then all of a sudden, now they want rehabilitation rather than, than punishment. Um, and that's, what they, that's how they change. We all change as, as we grow up, so to speak. And so most judges are working at least 20 years and, and things happen um, during their lives that change their personal philosophies. And people that say, oh, just follow the law. Um, there is no law um, on some subjects. Of course, there is law on others, but on some subjects, it can go either way. You can either lock someone up or give them another chance on probation. I can't pull down a, a law book to tell me what to do. Do you think that sometimes... At the end of a case, you feel like no matter what, you can never really get justice, especially in murder cases. When there, the kind of, you you can't heal those who have been harmed, and there is no level of restitution that can mend this loss. Of course. I do feel that, but that's not something that as a judge, I generally take into account. Um, judges are, are impassive in, in that sense. Um, certainly we feel things um, when we allow victims at the end of cases to um, give victim impact statements, how it impacted them and their families and such, and it's horrifying. Um, in some cases, how families have been torn apart and such. Um, but judges do their best to do justice in every case. And I think the book um, demonstrates that we're just not 
we're just people like everybody else. We might wear black robes and all kind of look alike, but um, we're just plain old people. Okay, this is a really silly question, but why the robes? Do you think we need robes? Is, is it like a unifier? What is it? I think it is a symbol, just like um, why the judge's bench is elevated um, so that you look down on the audience, that um, justice is what our country is, is built on. Um, judges are revered in some cases um, for their position. And um, justice should be the same no matter where you are, no matter what courthouse you're in, what floor of the courthouse you're in, what judge you're in front of. And that's why we all wear the same robe. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I was just kind of curious. Do you, do you feel you still need those robes or do you see a possible change there? I know no. it's, it's, it's inconsequential to what is really going on in a courtroom, <laughs> you know, but it's that, that moment. And, and then I've always, um, it just kind of like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who always, you know, has to have, she, she the likes collar. to do a little, the little collar, a little decorative collar, you know, trying to have a little sense of style, a little sense of personality. <laughs> Um, you know, um, I think it is important for a judge to have robe, a robe, and I don't think it's ever going to change. It might change in the, the way it, it is cut, so um, like a tent. Um, and I think women, honestly, should have a robe that's designed more to, to be a little bit more flattering. But I think it, it signifies when people enter a courtroom and see a judge that this is really serious business and that this is what our country is founded on, that we are a, a nation of laws and um, that judges and laws and courtrooms need to be respected. I'm so, curious. Um, there is, by the way, in my book, a whole section about robes. Um, <laughs> and judge, because people say, what do you wear underneath the robe, right? And I would say it's probably similar to right now. We look pretty good from the waist up. Um, some judges wear jeans. I mean, I, I talk about the different um, types of um, material the robes are made out of. Um, whether robes are open at the end of the sleeve or closed, which is very important, <laughs> whether they close with snaps or whether they close with Velcro. Um, that's actually a, a, little, uh, a little section that, you know, not very long, but I talk about it in the book. I love that. That is so funny. So the book, Inside the Robe, A Judge's Candid Tale of Criminal Justice in America, is out this week. Um, I presume anywhere you can buy a book, you can get the book? Yes, but of course there's no bookstores that are open right now, but you can get the book on Amazon. It's, it's quite easy to find. Okay. And I'm curious, did you do an audiobook? Not yet. <gasps> Who's going to narrate the audiobook? Are you going to do it? Well, I'm listening to your voice and thinking maybe you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I take that as quite a compliment, but yeah. I, I, I'm really into audiobooks. Um, I can't, I, and it all started because Audible was one of our sponsors. <laughs> and now I am addicted to audiobooks, absolutely addicted to them. Well, hopefully I'll have one someday. Usually the audiobook comes out a bit after the, the paperback or the, um, the Kindle book. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you.
So it is now time for our comments section. These are the crime stories that you all are talking about. In Florida, a woman left her children home alone so she could then attempt to kidnap the neighbor's children. Okay, this is very strange. 28-year-old Hannah Braun is behind bars after deputies say she left her home at 2 o'clock in the morning on August 18th. At around 2.15 in the morning, the ring doorbell camera at the neighbor's captures Braun knocking on the neighbor's door. She then allegedly entered the home and she tried to take the nine-month-old baby in that home. Now it's two in the morning. Can you imagine your neighbor's ringing the doorbell? So you're thinking, oh my God, what's happened? Something terrible has happened. And then she comes in and she tries to rip the baby out of your arms and, and tries to make off with, with, the, um, with the baby. And, and it was the, the 12-year-old who was actually holding the 12-year-old sister of the baby was holding. Okay, so can you imagine how traumatized this 12-year-old is um, after this happens? Police say that there was a struggle. Um, the children's parents called for police. This would have been, you know, where the, the invasion was. Braun was booked in, and she's been charged with attempted kidnapping, burglary, assault, battery, child neglect, and child abuse because she left her own kids alone at the time. Oh, it's... Just it's like it's lunacy. It's nothing short of lunacy. So these are the comments. Michelle V writes, she needs to stay far away from kids. She needs to be kept in one place for many years. Flora M writes, hopefully she doesn't get her kids back. She shouldn't be allowed around anyone's kids. I have to agree with her. And then Ben M writes, makes you wonder if her kids are even hers. And you know what that made me think? It's like, oh. Is it possible that her own children aren't hers if she tries to take another child? I agree. <laughs> you, you make, it makes you wonder. It does make um, you wonder if those kids are wonder. hers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Generally, you well, operate in patterns. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've seen situations where um, there's a woman who is a little bit different, but was babysitting um, for somebody else and basically um, beat the the out of a two-year-old um, that she was babysitting and killed this baby. Um, but she had her own children. So she's in, 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 in jail for murder. Um, and she had her own children. And it makes you wonder um, how she raised them. I, that, the fact uh, that they survived. Catherine, it has been such a delight to have you on. We're so honored to have a former Thank judge you. to kind of help piece things together on these cases and get your perspective on it. If people want to find out more about you or your book, where can they find you? They can look at katherinemater.com. They can look at insidetherobe.com. They can look for the book on Amazon. Um, just push in Inside the Robe book and uh, it will pop up. Terrific. We wish you much success with your Thank new you. book. Thank you for coming you. on. If you, want to, if you want to find me, I'm Anna G News with one N on all social media platforms. Of course, you can find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you can see us on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. And you can also get updates. Subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.